1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 15 tonight. In, in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul makes his, his fourth shift in topic since the beginning of chapter 4. With, and with his final uh, trans, transition, he moves away from discussing the particulars of the Lord's return uh, and the, the day of the Lord to how one lives life in the community of faith. You know, uh, so, you know, the last couple of weeks we've talked about how he, we've talked about the return of Jesus. We've talked about the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, all those sort of things. Well, now Paul quickly brings us back down to earth and it reminds us that while all those things are coming and we're waiting for the return of Christ, uh, that we have a life to live here and that we have a, a mission to pursue. And so he dives right in by giving uh, us some practical instruction about everyday living in the body of Christ. And in this passage, Paul probes no deep theological mysteries. He doesn't give us any new, you know, prophetic utterances or anything. In fact, you know, he, he doesn't uh, even address things like worship styles and oh, oh. He doesn't address things like uh, worship styles or building architecture or dress codes or any of those things. But instead, when he starts talking about the church and doing life together, uh, in, in fact, I've titled tonight's study, How to Treat People in Church. When he starts talking about church and how church is supposed to be, he doesn't get into any of those things at all, but he goes right to the very heart of the church. And that is interpersonal relationships and it's internal devotion. It's about people. It's about the relationships. That's what is uh, what the, the church is about. Um, and so it really boils down to how much do you love one another and how much do you love God? Really boils down to that. Somebody once said uh, that the church would be that church would be easy if it just weren't for the people. And, uh, you know, and so while in a humorous way, that might be true. But all joking aside, if it weren't for people, there wouldn't be church. And, and, and however, the fact remains that when you do bring people together with varying personalities, with different styles, different likes, different preferences, when you bring people from different backgrounds and different, uh, different ways of seeing the world together, problems are, are bound to arise. And so, uh, yet, yet despite of this, in spite of the fact that you know, that, that, uh, that, that there are so many different kinds of people and the challenges that they bring into a church. The great news is, is that Jesus still guarantees the church's success. That's what he said in, in Matthew 6, 19. He's talking with Peter after the great confession of faith as to who Jesus was. Jesus said, on this rock, and he's not talking about Peter, he's talking about his confession of faith. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of, of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's good news for me as a pastor. You know, I want to see the church grow, but it's not up to me to build it. I can't build the church. It's his church. He builds it. He does the work. And thank God he lets us in on it. And then he uses us to be part of that. But that's the good news that we have that Jesus said he will build his church. However, the truth is for the church to accomplish its mission outside of its walls effectively, because we know we have a mission to reach this world, to preach the gospel to everyone. But for us to accomplish that, for Jesus to be able to use us to do that, 
then it, the church must first be healthy inside the walls. And, and, and one of the key factors affecting the internal health of the church is how God's people relate to one another. There's so much in Scripture about uh, how we're told to love one another. And so with this in mind, Paul shows the Thessalonians two specific areas uh, within the church where proper interpersonal relationships are essential. Uh, uh, the first one is how the people relate to their with their leaders. And the second is how people relate to one another. That's these, these verses, what we're going to be talking about tonight. So let's read verses 12 and 13, and then we'll, we'll talk about that and then get into the second part in a minute. He says this, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So the believers in the church needed to show respect for those in leadership in order for everything to function smoothly. And I'll just say this right up front as we get into this section. This teaching about something like this is always a very awkward thing for me because I'm talking about how uh, the church ought to treat its leader when I'm standing here as a spiritual leader in the church. So it's a very awkward thing. So I, I want you, I want to disconnect that as much as I can personally. And let's just look at what the scripture says and, 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 and just everybody understand that I'm just going through this word verse by verse. And so this is not me saying, man, church, get it together. You better treat me better. Cause I think you, I love the way you treat me. I love. And so, so it has nothing to do with that. So, Anyway, these leaders that he's talking about in the Lord's work were probably elders. That's the word that was often used. We, we use that. Some churches use that term. Uh, it really is, is, it's not a technical term in their sense. It just meant somebody who was a leader uh, in the church. And, and these were men who held positions of leadership and responsibility. Elders were church officers providing supervision and protection and discipline and instruction and direction for the other believers. And we don't know everything that, that, uh, that they were given, all the responsibilities they were given, but we know they had different types of elders because, um, we're, well, I think we read a verse where we see it tonight, but he, but he said, he talks about giving honor to elders and he said, especially those who teach. So apparently there were elders who didn't teach, who were still involved in leadership in the church, but that's neither here nor there. But they carried great responsibilities and, and they were also expected to be good examples. And we, we're not going to get into that tonight, but like you can read in, in, uh, first Timothy, I think it is, is where it talks about some of the qualifications of being a deacon. And that would also be considered a position of eldership in a sense. But these men that he's talking about worked hard among the believers and deserved to be honored. Uh, he, he expressed a similar thought in, in, to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 5.17. He said, The elders who direct the, uh, who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So you can see there, there's the verse I was talking about, that apparently there were people, elders who took care of certain aspects of the church and other elders who took care of other aspects. Not all of them did preaching and teaching. Uh, but we can see that there is a leadership structure in place in local churches, and it began, began very early in the life of the church. You know, some people, uh, you know, they think they think the church ought to be anarchy. You know, there's like, well, we shouldn't, you shouldn't have a pastor. There, there are actually churches out there that think this kind of thing, uh, but they, but they're missing what the Bible actually teaches about it. Um, 
But when, when Paul planted a church, he knew he was going to be moving on. He wasn't there to stay for the rest of his life to lead that church. And he knew that he needed to leave behind an organized group of believers. So from the very beginning, he would begin uh, identifying people who he uh, would anticipate would be elders. He began, would, began to train them, teach them, get them prepared to, to provide leadership because he couldn't stay at each church and he knew that they needed some uh, strong spiritual leadership when he left. So leaders were chosen to, to teach sound doctrine. They were chosen to help believers mature spiritually and to equip believers to live for Jesus Christ despite opposition. And, and you know, one of the things that he talks about, he mentioned in, in verse 12, he, he, he talked about those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord uh, and who admonish you. That word admonish is really about correction. And, and I'll just be honest, to me, that is one of the most difficult parts as a pastor, especially in today's culture. Uh, because, you know, think of it like this. When Paul planted this church in Thessalonica, it wasn't like there was, you know, First Baptist Church on that corner and the First Assembly over on this corner and then a Methodist church over here and you had an independent church over there. Where, uh, where, see, the problem with that is, is that, is that if, if a pastor goes to correct somebody in one of those churches, they get mad and they just, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to First Baptist. And they, and they leave. Well, in Paul's day, they could, they, there was no place else to go. So it made it a little, you know, a little bit, it was a little different situation. So I think today in our culture, that part of admonishing is one of the more difficult parts of a pastor. Uh, to, because it's hard to know how to approach somebody because you want to correct them, but you don't want to crush them. You don't want to correct them, but you, you don't know if they're going to be open to correction because here's what I learned a long time ago. I can't correct anybody that doesn't want to be corrected. You know, I can give them the truth and I can speak to them about it, but unless they're open and receptive to, to, uh, receptive to that, there's really not much I can do. But, but Paul said, you know, these men, are not doing these things for their own benefit. They're not doing these things because, hey, this would be a fun thing to do. And we, you know, I, I want to do this. They're doing it because they love them. They love the church and they, they want to help those people grow and become more like Christ. And, uh, and so he said, in addition to honoring them, which we understand that word honor, but he also told them that they were, they should hold them in the highest regard in love. Now that's an interesting phrase and I want to bring it out just simply because it's that, that phrase highest regard, regard or esteem, you know, it's, that's the word that's used there. It doesn't, but, it, but the phrase together conveys a, a, a forcefulness that left Paul's readers with no doubt about his meaning because the, the adverb that he uses there, it's translated as highest in, in the NIV at least. It means quite beyond all measure. And so one way we could paraphrase that sentence would be uh, to, uh, to say, esteem them way beyond what you could imagine is a, is a great way to say it. He's trying to help them understand the importance of seeing the value of the spiritual leadership and realizing that, that even when they say something they don't like, that they're doing it for their benefit, for their good. And, and of course, Paul is not saying that we should place these men on a pedestal or we should blind ourselves to their faults. But I think at the same time, we should, we should never, we shouldn't hold back our praise and hold back our encouragement 
as some people do. I, I mean, I've, I've heard of real stories of people who there were people in the church who thought it was their ministry to keep the pastor humble, you know, and it's, it's that's a terrible, terrible thing. They're no fun to deal with. I can tell you that right now. Uh, but but leaders would be held in the highest esteem, not out of fear, but but be, but out of love, he says. And these leaders are to be respected and loved, not just because of their position, uh, not just because of their responsibility, but because of their work. And, the, and that word translated labor means to exert energy to the point of weariness or fatigue. fatigue. And I'm here to tell you, as a pastor, you know, some days... It's, you know, everybody likes to make the joke. Must be nice. You only work once a, one day a week, you know, and, and every, most people don't know that that is a joke. Uh, but you do have days that are easier than others. But you know what? You have other days as a pastor that wear you out, not just physically, but it wears you out emotionally. It wears you out spiritually. And you just, all you can do is go home and fall into a chair and, and just collapse there for a while. That's all you can do. Um, it, 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 the, the pastor is not afraid of hard work, a real pastor, he, and, but he's not in it for paychecks, which is kind of funny because if anybody gets into pastoring for money, they need to go to a finance class because you're not going to get you're not going to get rich doing pastoring. They're not in it for paychecks. They're not in it for the perks. They're not in it for, to, so they can have a nine to five job for, for a pastor. It's a calling and, and his calling is his life and his passion. Uh, speaking to a group of potential pastors, Charles Spurgeon described such a calling. I want to read this to you. I think it's so powerful. Now, Spurgeon is like Paul. He has these massive run-on sentences. So just try to hang on and follow the length of this sentence here. But he says, if any student in this room, he's speaking to these uh, young men who are going into ministry, they're in this, in this uh, class here. And he says, if any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man whom dwells the spirit of, of God in its fullness. For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit, but that for which is his inmost soul pants. If on the other hand, you can say that for the, all the wealth of both the Indies, you could not and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from the preaching of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then depend on it. If other things be equally satisfactory, you have the, the signs of this apostleship. He goes on, he says, we must feel that woe unto us if we preach not the gospel. The word of God must be unto us as fire in our bones. Otherwise, if we undertake the ministry, we shall be unhappy in it shall be un unable to bear the self-denials incident to it and shall be of little service to those among whom we minister. That's a long, long, long paragraph that he talks about this, but it really echoes what I have told at times for, to different young people. I've had young people at times come to me and say, hey, I feel like God's calling me to ministry. And, and I, I want to encourage them in that, but I've had them come to me and I've told them at times, listen, Here's all I can say is if you can do anything else, do it. And it's not because I want to, want to tell them, don't do this. This is a bad thing to get into. That's not what it is at all. It's that if you can do something else, then you're not called. If, that, if you ask yourself, 
Can I do something else? And there's something in your heart that says, no, there's no way I can be content doing anything but the ministry. There's a fire in my bones. I've got to do this. I cannot live without this. Then you have a call on your life that you need to pursue with all your, all your might. Listen, I'm here to tell you that pastoring is not easy in today's church. Uh, there, there are all kinds of things. There are unspoken pressures to perform. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, people today have instant access to absolutely the finest preachers in the entire world. Instant access. That's, we've never had that before. You know, before you could hear somebody preach, but it had to be recorded on a tape somewhere or whatever. But now you can go online, you can get on your, on your phone, whatever. You can listen to the absolute finest preachers and teachers in the world anytime you want. And, and then what happens is sometimes the, these people hear these silver tongued orators, these people who know how to give these emotionally powerful, motivational messages. And then they go to church and wonder, why can't my pastor preach like that? And, and, and too often, especially in the Pentecostal world, we equate, equate emotionalism with the anointing. And we think if it, makes, if it makes me feel something, it must be anointed. But no, you can be manipulated with your emotions if, if you're not careful. And, and then they want their pastor to make them feel the same way that the other preacher made them feel. What they don't realize is that most of those guys in those big ministries have, have uh, literal teams of people behind the scenes that are working on messages for them, helping them to prepare messages. And they work on those things for weeks and sometimes months ahead of time. And it's not just one guy, you know, trying to put a message together while he's caring for the church and doing hospital calls and making sure everybody's okay and do those sort of things. But they have this team dedicated to this. And that's almost, that's just about all they do. But I'm here to tell you, most pastors don't have that kind of a team. I don't. Some people say, yeah, it shows, Pastor. But, 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 and so sometimes there's this, there's this pressure to perform, to try to be a better preacher, that sort of thing. But, but here's the thing it's not always the pressure to perform that comes from the people. I'm here to tell you, a lot of times it's the pressure that comes from inside the pastor because they know these people can hear people way better than me anytime they want. And so uh, they begin to wish that they could preach more like one of those guys. And, and they, they know inside their heart they can never measure up and, and they begin to, to fold to that pressure to perform. And I, I just say, God forbid, that it ever becomes about performance. It's just about presenting the Word of God to the best that you can. Here's the thing. What I have to realize is that even if I could preach like, you know, whoever, Stephen Furtick, you know, he's a great communicator, somebody like that. Even if I could preach like somebody like that, it doesn't matter if it's not anointed. It's, it's all about what God does. Then you, then you add to that the fact that most pastors have no one with whom they can talk when they're hurting or discouraged. That's just a reality. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. I don't think that was how it was in the early church at all, but that's the reality for most pastors in today's world. Um, I, and, and part of that is I can tell you personally from my experience that just about every time I opened up and spoke to a person in the church about how I was hurting or how I was discouraged or what was going on, 
almost every time, sometime down the road, they turn that around and use it as a tool against me. Well, that makes it really hard to open up in the future. Makes it really, makes you really gun shy where you're like, man, do I, should I really share what I'm feeling? Should I really talk about this? Uh, because if I do, are they going to turn it around? Are they going to use it against me? And, and, and what that does is for the pastor, it makes it very hard for that person, for that uh, uh, individual to, to find healing and peace and comfort because you need that. This is why our small groups are so important because that's the place where we help one another and we support one another. We pray for one another and we help deal with those things where I can get these things out in the open and talk about it. Now, I'm telling you all of these things not because I want you to feel sorry for people in the ministry, not because I want you to feel sorry for me, far from it, because listen, pastoring can be frustrating at times, it can be exhausting at times, it can be heavy at times, but I want you to know that it is the most rewarding, the greatest calling that you can possibly imagine. And, and, and when, and when you know, when God does something in a life that's just absolutely unexplainable by human means, and that person is changed forever, you know, I want to see what God does, what he's been doing like in Sam's life or in Kelly's life or in other, I can talk about everybody in this place and call out names. When I see that, then it makes all of those other things worth it. And it's, and it, it's okay. Every moment of pain and discouragement and exhaustion just goes out the window when I see what God does. And, uh, and, and so I'm not telling you these things so that you'll feel sorry for ministers, but I'm really telling them to you for, for two main reasons. Number one, I'm telling you these things so that you will pray for those that are in ministry. That's the first thing. Every pastor, every minister, whether they're a lead pastor youth pastor, a children's pastor, a music pastor, doesn't matter what it is, pastors need your prayers more than ever before because it's getting harder and harder to be a pastor in today's world. It's getting harder and harder. There's more and more pushback against truth. But here's the second reason I'm telling you these things. As I want you to understand the power of your love and encouragement. Um, I want you to know that every time someone expresses a word of encouragement to me, it fills up my gas tank a little bit. You know, this past Sunday, uh, there were were some cards of encouragement for pastor appreciation that were left. And and you know that that does something for the pastor, helps them realize, number one, they're not alone. You know, okay, people do love me. Because you know you don't always hear it. You don't. I'm just telling you the reality of it. Uh, every time someone says to me, like I had someone this week come to me, and they were talking about some things, and they said, they said, Pastor, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Every time somebody says something like that, that's just a little anchor point to which I can fasten my heart, and it reminds me I'm not alone. I'm not the only one praying for this church. I'm not the only one here. There are other people standing with me. Every time someone comes to me and says, man, I just want you to know I appreciate your ministry. That keeps me going. Because, I mean, like, for example, like on Wednesday night, uh, I put a lot of work into every Wednesday night. Hours of work to prepare for this. And, and, And same thing on Sunday, you know, hours of work trying to get things ready. And there are times when, I'll just be honest with you. There are times when I finish 
whether it's Wednesday night or it's Sunday morning and I preach or I teach a lesson and I walk out of there thinking, boy, that was a big nothing burger. That was just, that was just wasted time. That didn't seem to go anywhere. But, but see, this is why pastors need encouragement. Same way that you need encouragement. Pastors need the encouragement. And it's not that I depend on people. You know, I'm going to do what God called me to do, whether anybody says anything or not. But I am just putting it this way. Put it this way. Just reminding you that God uses you to minister to me as much as he uses me to minister to you. Um, a number of years ago, Our Daily Bread, a great devotional, they featured an article titled, Getting Rid of the Pastor. And apparently some members of a local cong- congregation approached another pastor to seek advice about how to get rid of their pastor. And seeing through their motives and everything, uh, this pastor offered them the following wise counsel, counsel. I want to read this to you. This is what he told them. Look your pastor straight in the eye while he's preaching and say amen once in a while. He'll preach himself to death. Pat him on the back and tell him his good points. He'll work himself to death. Rededicate your life to Christ and ask your minister for a job to do. He'll die of heart failure. And the fourth one was get to church to pray for him. Soon he'll become so effective that a larger church will come and take him off your hands. So it's all tongue in cheek, but, but all the point to say, listen, what you say to me, to Pastor Jason, to Maribeth, to everybody involved in ministry, it matters. It makes a difference. Um, and, and, and so your encouragement is a huge thing. And that's a huge way to honor those that are in leadership. And, and faithful church leaders should be supported and appreciated. And I want to focus on, I think that's an important word, faithfulness. You know, not everybody is going to be the best in fact, there's only, you know, you think about it in the world, there's only one best of anything. I don't care what it is. I don't know who it is, but there's only going to be one best. And so it's not that, you know, that, that we can be the best. But, but here's, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And then the success is in His hands. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I'm telling you, I have been in situations and leading in churches where it was a joy, and I've been in situations where it was a burden. Where it was a joy was when the people's heart beat with mine and we were pulling together and working together, but where it was a burden was where there was murmuring and complaining and people who were trying to cause decision, dissension. And that's the difference between you. So how can you show respect and honor uh, and, and hold in the highest regard your pastor and other church leaders? Number one, express your appreciation. And, and I'll just say this. This sounds so weird because it sounds so self-serving, but you don't have to wait to Pastor Appreciation Sunday to, to express your appreciation. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about giving monetary gifts or anything like that. I'm just a card or a note or just a handshake saying, listen, I want you to know how much I appreciate you and your ministry. It, it really makes a difference. Second way you can do it. Tell them how you've been helped by their leadership and teaching. And third, thank them for your, their ministry in your life. Because here's the thing. If you say nothing, how will they ever know where you stand? 
Remember, they need your, your support and love. All right, let's move on to something a little bit more, be a little more comfortable for me to talk about. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So while leaders have special responsibility to guide the church and and, uh, to exhort the church and do those sort of things, the truth is, Every believer, all the other believers are not exempt from their responsibility to care for one another. This is what we have to know. We have to understand it's not just the pastor that's called to love the church. It's the church that's called to love one another. The the reason I always say it like this, I think I even mentioned it recently. I don't know if it was on a Wednesday or Sunday. You know, when I go to make a hospital call, I, I am there as a pastor. But you know what? If I wasn't a pastor, I'd still be called to make that hospital call because I'm called to love the, the members of my body of Christ. And so uh, this is the calling that we all have. And Paul singled out, singled out three different groups of people in this church and urged be- believers to look after or to deal with them in three different ways. And we're going to talk about these ways and talk about how uh, the practical, practical application of it all. So first of all, They were to warn those who were idle and disruptive. Now, if you have an older NIV, it'll just say idle, but the word that's translated there actually contains both of those ideas. And so so the the later, the newer version of the NIV includes both. And the word that's translated as idle and disruptive, what it, it really is a word that's used that pictures a soldier who steps out of line, steps out of formation, and then behaves in a disorderly manner. So based on the meaning of the word, perhaps Paul simply had in mind any church member whose behavior was threatening the unity and integrity of the church, who was stepping out of line, who wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing, and, and, was, and was causing disruption as the church was marching forward on, you know, with the orders given from God. And today, this could take many, many forms today, from the from the gifted pew sitter who never gets involved to the opinionated busybody who criticizes everyone. They're, these are the ones who threaten to withhold their tithes when they get upset. These are the ones who seek to undermine the authority of their leaders by stirring up dissension. These are the ones who refuse to use spiritual gifts while critiquing, critiquing those who are actually doing something. And not only that, these are the ones that show up for business meetings, but won't show up for worship service. That's a, that's a huge one. These people need to be warned. They need to be warned to get back in among the believers and use their God-given gifts in service for the kingdom, to get back in line. Not, not to get in line and do what you're told, but to get back in line and serve Christ. That, that you're causing issues, you're disrupting the church you're not helping the kingdom. You're hurting the kingdom. These people need to be warned. Second group, he told them to encourage those who were disheartened. Now, here's, the, here's something that's interesting, and we're gonna, we'll talk a little bit more, tie this in. But if somebody is disheartened, it can look, at the same, look exactly the same to us on the outside as somebody who is just idle. See, because the person who's idle just because they don't want to do anything, 
They're just, they're just idle. They need to be warned. But the person who's sitting there because they're discouraged and they have just about given up, if you go to that person and try to warn them, well, now you, you've actually w- wounded them more deeply. So the, the idle and the lazy need to be warned, but the disheartened need to be encouraged. The idle and disruptive would be those who, those overly confident individuals who clamor for attention, whereas the disheartened would be those who lack self-confidence and choose to remain on the fringes. They've, they've become discouraged or worried. And in this case with the Thessalonians, possibly it was because of persecution or maybe, you know, we know that some of those that among their, in their church had died. And so maybe they were uh, discouraged or worried because of, because of those things. And Paul says these kind of people need loving encouragement from their fellow believers to calm their fears and to build their confidence, not confidence in themselves. Listen, I am, I, I am not called to try to make you more self-confident. I'm called to help you become more Christ-confident. That's where our confidence is. It's not in, I can do this, or that you can handle it, you can make it, you can do this. It's that He will see you through. It's that He will strengthen you. It's that He will do this work in you. That's the confidence that we have to encourage them in. And and so according to Paul, here's the thing. Helping discouraged people is not that difficult. It's really not. You don't have to do some great thing, some great grand gesture. Often all they need is a simple word of encouragement. All they need is a pat on the back. All they need is for you to grab them and say, come here, brother, come here, sister. We're going to pray together because God's going to see you through this. That's all they need. Listen, sometimes church work is messy because you have to deal with people and every person brings their own baggage to the church. This is what makes makes the church so miraculous is that when the church comes together and everybody has their own baggage and has their own background and have their own issues and yet we're bound together in the love of Christ. It's like, how in the world does that happen? That's got to be supernatural. But the truth is all people in, in, to, in a, to a very real extent are products of past hurts, of present struggles and of future fears. And sometimes with the help of the Holy Spirit, they're able to overcome those things. But sometimes, and I think you've been there, I think you understand, I've been there. Sometimes those things get the best of me. And then we become discouraged. And if church is to be a place where everyone can be real, and that's the only way we ever find freedom, is if we can learn to take the mask off and become real. Obviously, in a smaller group setting, you know, you're not going to stand up a group of 100 people and say, I want to tell everybody all the truth about my life because you, you, you can't trust everybody. But if we're going to become real, then we have to remember that sometimes people need encouragement. So when somebody, you know, opens up and they take the mask off and they become real, instead of getting shocked and saying, well, I can't believe you, you shouldn't do that. Maybe they just need some encouragement in that moment. Rather than running a person over in an attempt to get the work done, because, you know, sometimes we, we can get very task-oriented and forget about the people part. The flip side is true. We can become so people-oriented, we forget about the task. So somewhere there's a balance in there. But, but if we are so intent on getting the work done, we can end up running over people who just need encouragement, who will help us do the work if we can take time with them 
and encourage those disheartened. Those disheartened. Third thing, he said they were to help the weak. The, the word translated help here is also translated take tender care. And it's a word that literally means to hold on to those people, to wrap arms around them, and to cling to them. I mean, you, you talk about, uh, you know, this is not just, hey, just want you to know I care. This is, this is somebody who says, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap my life around you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to take care of you. This is the kind of help suggested for those who are spiritually weak, those who are weak in faith, those, excuse me, those who might be struggling with sins. They need somebody to grab hold of them and say, I'm not going to let go. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's going on. I'm not going to let go. Those who are struggling, they, whether they're needy or immature Christians, they need the arms of strong fellow believers to guide them, to give them support, and to let them know that they're not alone, and that they're not abandoned. Romans 14.1, Paul said, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, here's the thing about all these things. I think what's important for us to realize is that Paul's advice, for it to be effective, we have to learn how to use the right medicine. It would, it would not work. I kind of touched on this a moment ago. It would not work to take tender care of an idle or disruptive person. That person doesn't need me. The person who's causing disruption in the church and who's sitting around idle and not doing what God called them to do. They don't need me to come along and give them tender care and say, oh, I just want you to know I love you so much. No, they need somebody to say, hey, <laughs> snap out of it, buddy. All right? Don't do the real slapping part. That's just figurative. It would not work to warn a discouraged person. I kind of talked about that a moment ago. That person is in a fragile state anyway, and a warning would only drive the wound deeper, maybe even scare them away. It would not work to warn a truly weak person to, to, to press on to greater things. You know, I mean, I mean, if somebody is struggling with sin and you go to them and you just warn them without wrapping your arms and loving them, then they're probably just, you, that kind of callousness is just going to ignore the real need and push them away. So I think here that the real key to ministry is sensitivity. Uh, and I think this is where a dis discernment of spirits becomes a huge part of our, of our ministry. You know, we talk about discernment and sometimes people think of discernment of spirits as saying, oh, well, I, I know this is a spirit of so-and-so, but it's not just that. That's not all it is. It's also the ability to discern what's going on in other people so that, that I can, you know, if I, if I learn to, if I have the gift of discernment, I can at times realize, hey, this person's hurting. And, and they're putting on a great show and nobody else knows it, but somehow you know that they're hurting. And, and so the key to ministry is sensitivity. The key to ministry is sensing the condition of each person and then offering the appropriate remedy, remedy for each situation. It, but, but here's, this is again, this is where relationships become so important, this whole idea of loving one another, because you cannot effectively apl apply the right medicine until you know what's causing the pain, right? So like if somebody said, man, I got back pain, you say, well, let me just put some Icy Hot on there. But then it turns out they got kidney stones. It's the wrong medicine. 
So you got to know what the what the problem is. You got to know what the issue is before you can give the right medicine. Now, how do we know? How do we figure out what the what the, what the right uh, problem? What the problem is so that we can give the right medicine? Well, it means that we've got to be willing to take time to be with people. It means that we have to be willing to take time to get to know people. And we've got to be willing to take the time to invest in the lives of those people. Because, you know, here's the thing. Like I've said this before, there have been times when I've come home from a, a day at the office and maybe something discouraging happened. And there have been times I've walked into the house and before I said anything, all of a sudden, you know, Julie sees me and she says, she'll say hi first. And then before I even have a chance to answer, she say, are you okay? I'm like, how in the world does she know that? It's because she knows me so well. She can pick up on the tiniest things when I don't even know they're there. And, and that's, that's why it's so important for us to, to bond and to grow, to grow closer to one another and, to, and to, why our small groups are so important because it's in that setting that we learn and we, and we get to know one another that deeply. And then Paul's final instruction regarding, regarding how to deal with one another is that, and this is really no fun at all, it's the one where he says, be patient with everyone. Anybody here enjoy that one? <laughs> yeah, you enjoy it when they're being patient with you, <laughs> right? But, but if Christians are going to take seriously our responsibility to warn the idle and disruptive, to encourage the disheartened, to help the weak, then we're going to need to be patient. And that word patient, it's, it is the perfect word. The literal meaning behind it is to have a long fuse. That is the perfect word, the description of patience, isn't it? The patient person is someone who does not blow up easily when dealing with challenging circumstances or difficult people. And we, we all have difficult people, right? Anybody, if you have difficult people that in your life, raise your hand. Don't point your finger, just raise your hand, all right? We all have that. And the patience is learning and allowing the Lord to work in us so that that fuse gets longer. Patience is one of those virtues that, that it, although we know its importance, we struggle to put it into practice every single day. And some situations are worse than others. If you're like me, I can be patient all day long in a lot of ways, but if I get in the car on the freeway, it just, all of a sudden the patience is gone. Anybody relate with me? It's just somebody being having, being pointed out over here, but, um, but that's okay, brother. The Lord loves us. But, uh, we, we often demand patience in how others respond to our shortcomings, but then we lack patience in how we deal with, with theirs. So this is one of the things, this is one of the things in traffic that once in a while, well, not once in a while, quite often, the Lord will remind me when somebody does, does something, because listen, you don't have to drive very far or very long in Memphis before somebody's going to do something really stupid. You know, and, and when that happens, I always want to get mad. I'm like, you idiot, you know, what's wrong with you? And you need to go this. And then all of a sudden the Lord will remind me, remember last week when you pulled that boneheaded move and you cut that guy off. It's like, oh yeah, I guess I needed patience. They need wanted them to be patient with me because I didn't mean to do it. All oh, some of these knuckleheads mean to do it, but that's neither here nor there. But here's the thing: patience is one of God's attributes. You can read all about it in the even through the Old Testament, where He talks about He's patient with us, and uh, and that means that as we become more like Christ. 
we will become more patient. Have have any of you ever heard somebody say something like, hey, don't pray for patience. You ever heard somebody say something like that? Don't pray for patience because, you know, James tells us that patience comes through walking through tribulation and learning patience through those things. So they say, don't pray for patience. If you pray for patience, then you're going to have to deal with all kinds of trouble in your life in order to develop it. But I'm here to tell you this. I'm going to burst your bubble. I'm sorry to tell you this, but it does not matter whether you pray for patience or not, because God is still going to try to develop it in your life regardless. All right. So it makes no difference whether if you say, Lord, give me patience, he'll work on that. If you don't say, Lord, give me patience, he's still going to work on it because it's, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's part of becoming more like Christ. And, and Paul explains to us how to be patient. One of the first steps in being patient with everyone in verse 15, he said, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for every, everyone else. So patience begins with the adamant refusal to render evil for evil to anyone. That's the first step. Because the, the first thing we want to do when somebody wrongs us is we want to get them back. Patience says, no, I'm not going to get them back. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to take any action." That's the first step. Jesus said in Matthew Matthew 5, 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And somebody has said, yeah, but after that, you can hit him back because you only have two cheeks. No, you're missing the whole point of what Jesus is saying. He wasn't telling you to count the cheeks because in fact, he told us to forgive not seven times, but 70 times 70. That means... If you translate that to the whole cheek thing, that means you got to turn your to the other cheek at least 700 or 490 times, right? So anyway, I don't know why I said that. Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know what we, what we learn here in the New Testament? Is that the New Testament t- suggests a new and a radical response to injustice. See, the, the, the fleshly response to injustice is, I'm going to get you back. I want to be paid back. On one way or another, I'm going to, I'm going to get it back. I'm going to, you're going to pay for this because you have violated my rights. The New Testament suggests that instead of demanding rights, that we should give them up freely. Now, that is way easier said than done. But uh, I remember years ago, but, but it was right after Aaron was born. So it was a good 20, 20 or 21 years ago. Uh, Julie and I went to see a movie one Saturday morning. And we had not gone and done anything like that since she had been born. But there was a uh, family in the church, close friends of ours, and they had a little one. And they said, hey, we'll watch her. You see, you can go. So we like, oh, yeah, let's do this. So we went to the theater and we got in line to watch the movie we arrived uh we were going to see the first showing is actually of one of the star wars movies and and we arrived before the theater opened but while we got there there was already a line outside this is when we were living in reno nevada there's already a line outside the box office so we got in line started to wait our turn 
And after waiting for a while, uh, the, the theater finally opened one window. There's a long line there, but they opened one window to sell tickets. It was cold outside, and, and so we were, we were hoping, as we're standing there, that they would open another window. And then a few minutes later, they did open a second window. But during that time, before they opened the second window, there's a lady that was in line right uh, behind us, or in front of us, anyway, it doesn't matter. But that was in the back in the day when the theater did not take debit or credit cards, but they had an ATM machine in the lobby. So she asked her, she said, do you know if they take debit cards? And I said, no, they don't, but there is an ATM just in the lobby. They'll let you get in there and use that. If you want to go do that to get cash, we'll hold your place in line. So so she said, great. She went in there to do that. And so while we were waiting for her to come back, they opened this other window. And now we're holding her place in line, but I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking, man, I sure would like to get in that other line. It's really short because they opened the window and nobody was going over there. You know, and I was like, come on lady but we waited got her she finally got back out got back in line and uh and as soon as she got in line i i had told julie i said i said well when she gets back let's go to the other line there's nobody over there let's let's go get in the shorter line she and she agreed so so she got back we stepped out of line started going toward the other window and we got up there and and there was only like two people in front of me and as i got there all of a sudden this this older guy of course He's probably about my age now, so so now I'm the older guy. But he comes from this other line, and he walks over. Instead of getting a line behind us, he steps over and squeezes and steps right in front of us. And he gets in line in front of me. And I, I sort of, under my breath, sort of laughed. But that wasn't the worst of it. He was shorter than me. I'm not a tall guy, but he was shorter than me. And this was the time when... My buddy and I were working out a lot. I was in really good shape, strongest, best shape I've ever been in my life. And, and so I'm probably, you know, like at least 20, 25 years younger, this guy, best shape of my life. And he gets and he, and he turns around, looks me in the eye and says, you got a problem with that? <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you I did. I did have a problem with that. And I really, really wanted to tell him all about the problem that I had with that. Of course, I had, you know, pictures flashing through my mind, the headlines in the Reno Gazette Journal, you know, pastor arrested at fight and outside of theater, all this kind of stuff. I had all these pictures in my mind. But but part of what kept me from saying anything was Julius standing there, look at me with those eyes and say, you better not say anything. You know, just keep your mouth shut. But I kept my mouth shut. And with, with Julie's help and the Lord's help, I didn't say a word. Now, now, before you get too spiritual, you know, I, I realized when he got his tickets, he was going to the same movie we were. And so I, when we went into the theater, um, I'm still like, man, I really want to tell him. I want to tell him what a, kind of a problem I had about this. And so I would go in the theater and, and I'm standing up in my seat looking around trying to find this guy. And the Lord blinded me, apparently, because I never could see him, even though I knew he was in that theater. And then afterwards, I was like, man, I'm going to find him outside. We're going to find him after the movie. So I wasn't real spiritual and, you know, at all. But but I but I didn't find him. So nothing happened. I didn't get a fight or anything. But but but, you know, here's the here's the thing about it. I, I, I didn't say anything. And, and that was, you know, so that's good. I kept my mouth shut. But after growing and in retrospect, my response should have been more than just keep my mouth shut and stew in my anger. My response should have been to gladly give him my rightful place in line, 
to say, sir, we weren't trying to do anything against you. Please take it. You know what? Maybe that would have opened up a conversation when I could have told him about Christ. Now that's, like I said, it's way easier to talk about than it is to do, especially in the moment. But we have to remember this. It is far more important in our lives that we give justice and mercy than for us to receive it. When we give it, we're reflecting Christ. Patience is furthermore expressed when we're kind to each other and to everyone else. Kindness is lost in today's culture. Um, There will be times when relationships between believers will be strained. That just happens. That's part of living in a broken world with other human beings. But it's during those times that we have to remember that we should never pay back wrong for wrong. Anybody ever had your mom say, I'm sure you've heard this, uh, and you've had it said to you, two wrongs don't make a right. However, three lefts do. But no, that's a uh, two wrongs don't make a right. So what we have to learn is not only should I not actively do something to retaliate, but when we talk about kindness, that means that even though I not, may not physically do something, I should not punish a person by withholding love and kindness from them. Another way of saying it is, I don't give them the cold shoulder. I don't ignore them. In fact, what I do is, in that moment, I make sure I lavish love and kindness on them on purpose. Because he does not say that we we should show kindness to those whom we think deserve our kindness. That's not what it says. He said to everyone. Everyone. In fact, here's the reality. Our kindness has the greatest impact on those who know they don't deserve it. That's what it says in Romans 12. We're going to read that in just a moment. We don't have the right or the luxury to hold grudges. We we can't control how others treat us. How many of you figured that out? We can't control how other people treat us but we can control how we respond to them. And you say, no, I can't. Well, yes, you can. Because one of the fruit, another one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But we, we, need to, we have to go out of our way to show love and kindness to everyone that we have the opportunity to influence. That w- when we have the moment, we have the opportunity, we have to pray. I mean, it, it takes some growth, but in that moment we have to say, Lord, help me. Help me to show them who you are by responding the way you would. And so we, we've got to do our part. And then we trust God to do his part. As Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, listen to this. This is what God says. He says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's talking about 
the conscience, the Holy Spirit boring down in their conscience and saying, you don't deserve this kindness. Why are they being kind to you? You should ask them about this. And then the door opens to share. He says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Powerful. Would you bow your head and let's pray. Father, Lord, we just thank you for the relationships that you give us in the church. This supernatural entity, this it's not just an organization, this organism, Lord, that you put together of people from all different backgrounds and different thought processes and different ways of doing things and different backgrounds and different uh, past sins and different different everything. And yet, it's Christ that brings us together and makes us one. And Lord, I pray that in this church and in this body, Lord God, that you would help us to learn how to grow in our love for one another, the relationship between the spiritual leaders and the body, Lord, that that would be one of growth and honor and respect. And God, our relationships with one another would be filled with love and filled with kindness. And that God, that we would, we would in every situation with your help, Lord God, that we would reflect what Jesus would do. And that instead of acting out of our flesh and our impulses, we would, we would reflect Christ to everyone around us as much as possible, Lord God. We know we're going to fail at times, but Lord, help us in those moments to not only make it right with you, but make it right with the other person as well. We just thank you, God, that you're going to help us with this because this is not something that comes naturally to us, but you will work this in us supernaturally. We believe that. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.